Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. All right. I want to welcome everyone to our Out of the Woods uh, Threat Hunting Podcast. This is our live uh, slash Discord interactive version. Uh, we aim to cover the burning topics related to all threat hunting and security stuff that hopefully everyone wants to know about and hopefully join in some of the conversation. So just as a reminder throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. So if you're logged in there and you have opinions, comments, suggestions, just really cool insight, throw it in there. We love to hear back from you and also got really great ideas last time when we had this conversation um, from our community here. So um, if you want to participate, make sure to sign up using the link in the welcome message if you're not in the Discord already. And just uh, break down some quick introductions. So myself, I'm Scott Poley. I'm a senior threat hunter at Cyborg Security. Played many roles in the past, been in security for 15 some years. Check me out on LinkedIn, connect with me if you don't know me. Um, next, uh, I'll pass it on to you, Mike. All right, hey, I'm Mike Mitchell here. I'm one of the co-founders over at Cyborg. Had the privilege of working with all these amazing hunters. Um, and uh, I'll pass it over to Alex, that's all. Hey guys, Alex, uh, security engineer at Cyborg for about three plus years now, I think. Um, in IT Cyber for almost nine years now. Mike, you actually think you're the one that gave me my first job. So, yep. I mean, keep it in the family. Love it. Yep. 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 Yeah, so, we got some fresh blood here. Alex is a good guy. So, hopefully, uh, we'll also hear some interesting stories from him as we go through this. Um, something else to mention, I'm sure you've probably seen it if you're in Discord, but we do do. We do have a themed drink. We do every um, live podcast. This one's called the Cider Stack Overflow. Check it out, um, which is what we're drinking. Alex, I think I think he made one. I got one here. It's a, an Appleish drink. Appleish? Is that a? Sure, that sounds like a good descriptive word. Um, it's uh, it's Appley. It's it's pretty good if you like uh, sweet things. Um, I'm drinking uh, I'm drinking wine, so I, I switch it up. So you're doing grapes. I get you. It's mm -hmm. like the other. Yeah. Fruits. It's fine. It's fruits. Yeah. It's fruits. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, with that, you know, we typically start this off with kind of diving into three interesting artifacts or artifacts that we find on the Internet um, to kind of jump into some security topics uh, to discuss. So to get that started, I'll jump into mine um, and I kind of pulled it up. So if you see my screen. Obviously, I'm broadcasting Discord, but I also pulled up some of the things we'll be talking about so you guys can see it. Uh, but uh, it's uh, Canary Tokens. So I don't know if people are familiar with Canary Tokens. Um, it's Thinks Canary is a, a really cool product where they actually um, build devices you can put on your network to emulate different things, um, kind of like your honeypot infrastructure. But they also create these software or soft tokens um, to fulfill um, numerous functionality so if you're kind of looking in here you know you can create basically documents you can have credit card tokens for a beta test stuff um they can do website based things um sql monitoring based things and what i'll i'll kind of go into that but they have a great document page that kind of walks through all the different tokens and some you know uh examples and it's free so basically how it works is all these tokens depending 
them, if someone interacts with these tokens, it uses DNS to basically generate alert to whatever email address you provide when you sign up for them. Um, so an uh, uh, interesting example uh, is like clone website token. So they have a token basically that's a JavaScript and you can obfuscate it because you can put it in your website. And what it does is every time the web page loads, it checks to see if the domain that which it was loaded from matches the domain that it's supposed to be. So it basically, you can put this on your website. So if someone scrapes your website, um, then, and they clone it somewhere else to try to do either phishing or spoofing, other types of things, uh, it will send an alert that someone's cloned your website and put it up. Um, you get the alert and you're able to know, to, you know, know about that. So it's kind of a cool mechanism if people are lazy when they're trying to do uh, like cloning a website. Um, the other cool thing that I've seen where people use it for is uh, PDF documents, Word, Excel, um, where basically they're, I think they're leveraging macros and then some JavaScript as well as in the PDF. But the same concept is if someone were to steal data from maybe a protected directory or something like that and just do it in mass, um, then when someone opens that, as long as they're not on a Linux machine and it's a fully qualifiable, uh, follows the standards for these documents, it will uh, pull down or make the DNS request, which will alert that that file has been taken or viewed essentially. Uh, so a good example of this is I know a lot of times I've looked at malware reports and it'll talk about uh, what how the actors exfil data and I'm like, oh, this malware, it looks for these file types and files with these names in them and things like that. It's like really good intel to say, okay, I can't really alert on that in my environment. Um, based on the tools, but if I were to build documents that have those keywords with those extensions that are supported, I can stash those places. And if we get hit with that, when they pull those files out, if they look at them, I'll know about it. And what's really cool is when it alerts, it tells where it alerts from. So then you'll get their IP address and things about them when they're opening the documents. Um, some other ones that I, I thought were really interesting use cases. And if you, uh, Mike and Alex, if you guys want to cut me off to chime in on any of these, feel free, because I got a, a couple more in a list to walk through. Um, no, the, the only thing I was going to ask you is from the defensive and offensive perspective, and I'm sure we're going to get to that point and diving in with some of the use cases, but it's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wait to have the comments, but I think there's some really interesting uh, things I've heard in the past, how this has been used, but mm -hmm. um, I think some of the use cases you're about to talk to will probably highlight where my mind's going with this. Yeah, so uh, one of the next one I, I, I've never used, but I've hypothesized how I would use it. Um, and you can basically do a, a custom EXE, where basically you give them an EXE mm -hmm. and then they sign it. And based on that signature, when that EXE is run, it generates the same type of traffic um, and will generate alert every time that EXE is run. Or you can do a sensitive command. Essentially, they give you basically a registry um key type thing you drop in so if any of these commands that are being run that you want to monitor for in your environment it can do the same type of alerting um, and so you know one of the things i remember uh back in the day there was an attack uh, in 2017 i believe where someone took an engineering workstation that was in a controlled environment and it had all the keys of the kingdom on it and the attacker needed to basically leverage that, but they couldn't maintain direct connections that way. So they did a virtual or a physical to virtual clone and they cloned the, the, the box off, made a virtual instance of it and ran it that way to, to get the access and do the things they needed to do. And I was thinking, you know, for really secure environments, it would be interesting to have these kind of 
some sort of script or task that runs on a you know 15 minute interval where it basically does like a ping and if it can't reach a certain resource then it runs that executable that's basically benign but will generate that alert so you know that that machine is now exists somewhere else or it has maybe access it shouldn't have to the internet or something like that that you can easily create these triggers for it would be really interesting a uh, a use case um and then they have some there's two other ones that i liked uh, that i wanted to mention one was the aws api key so yeah. basically yeah so you know if you have repos that have you, you use aws stuff in general obviously you want to pull those keys out but it might not be a bad idea to push these keys in because if anyone steals that repo or has access to it that shouldn't and tries those keys, you get notified. And then you know someone has access to things in your environment as well. Um, and the last one was the SQL server token. Uh, basically is a SQL trigger. Um, so in SQL, if you're not familiar, you can create triggers which are basically uh, cues to watch for activity and then will basically create an event. So it's kind of like when you build detections, but um, but they're not necessarily for security, they're for other actions too. Uh, in this case, they will the trigger will generate that DNS call out when people say dump a database or do certain activities. Uh, so you can know about that as well. So it's kind of a, a cool um, use case for that. But um, outside of Canary tokens, one of the other things that I know people have done in the past is creating like really, and this is outside of Canary, right? This is just doing active defense. Um, creating accounts in your environment that uh, have like domain admin privileges that are active, but you put the constraints where there's no hours that that account can be used. So it appears active, but it's, it's not usable. And you know, if anyone tries to use that account anywhere, it's suspicious, especially if they're trying to curb roast against it or they're trying to authenticate against it, all that kind of stuff. So those are That's some really cool detections. Have yeah, but, no, have you seen that practice in the wild? Because that seems problematic if you have an issue where you need to use that account and you're not within that window and you have to open it up and, and i'm sure there's some controls to open that right. up but it is no uh, it's it's a it's a dummy account so it's it's not right. one that's ever to be used so it sits alongside like it's just a user you add to the sure. domain admin group as example and it's oh, okay. never to be touched yeah right right those time constraints but so from a defensive perspective these canary tokens i mean they can be used um uh, maliciously um right to track people as they move through sites and um, I'm guessing the offensive team members could potentially use this as well. So if you're in an org, would you want to set up a monitor or detection against anything with that potential URI associated with it? Um, so you know if you're hitting sites and you know other people can pull your traffic and your information just like you know pixel tracking and dropping in that like one by one X uh, PNG or image on a website um, to pull that information as you're you know moving through different environments. So from a defensive perspective, would it make sense to kind of track that from an internal perspective to see if any of your employees are getting exposed to these type of um, actions? I think I think it might be. Um, I had some experience with it where we used it, the the word token that they have, the MS word token, dropping into proprietary drives that we wanted to watch over, like kind of like landmines. So it would trigger mm -hmm. with the source IP and whatnot if it was pulled from a, you know, from a different IP than what it should have. So I can see it being used in a defense posture for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing I think I've seen is it's easy to kind of throw these things or trying to generate these things, but you need kind of IT's buy-in because the last thing you want is to create a lot of noise for yourself yeah, just true. because no one knows what this is or, you know, you've got, you know, 
some of this takes a lot of coordination to set up so that you you know you're monitoring for those types of things so that's that's where i've seen some hurdles like for instance one of the things i wanted to set up and it was using the things canary box so we basically cloned our own we had a an external facing authentication website type service right um and we just wanted to set up clone of that and call it dev right so it looks like hey we have an exposed dev box and basically uh make it to where people can authenticate and it, when people try to authenticate against that it would pull the credentials back so you know what credentials are being used and we didn't need to see them but we wanted to create a script that would take those credentials and then do a basic authentication task to see if they're legitimate and if they're legitimate we'd create the automatic password role right so we know that credentials were exposed, someone tried them against a public facing thing that's not real. We roll that account, we, now we know we're protected proactively, we know about it, all those things, but the there was a lot of like, well, we can't log in as someone else. And we're like, well, we aren't. But I mean, the question for me, it was always tough, was like, wait, you're you're not okay of us using their account, but you're okay if the attacker has their password and whatever, right? you know, like, like it's like, it's always that political mindset that just kind of throws me like, are, are we talking about the right thing, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you mentioned IT buying and that's also a big hurdle. That could be a whole other hour and a half discussion that we could talk about. I mean, you know, Alex and myself coming from the background of security engineering, um, we had the luxury of being the security engineers and also IT. So I think that allowed us to have security posture um, and not have to have those hurdles of, you know the IT team saying, "Oh, you know, well, we don't want to turn this on because X, Y, Z. We could just do it. We understood the reason why." Um, there was a really interesting story about, and, and Scott, I think you know this one. You might have talked about this, but somebody using Canary tokens to track malicious actors that had gotten to their environment and then attack them back, mm. um, which is very problematic and <laughs> breaks yeah. a lot of laws. Um, but that was one of the really interesting use cases and when, when I really found out initially about Canary Tokens is that they're using it for the offensive perspective to protect themselves, but also kind of like fight back and attack back those those potential actors and users, what's, which is not good, right? Right. What's really interesting for me is if someone, if you're going to be able to get information from the host is like, say, steals a file and opens it and things like that, you know, most attackers use... I said I, I combined attackers and actors. I don't know if you heard it. Um, most attackers, uh, they have proxies and things in front of their key infrastructure, right? So they kind of route things through all that. But what's great is when people steal things, it comes down to like home base. So when you talk about it doing attribution or mm -hmm. trying to understand those types of things, if they beacon back, you have kind of a higher fidelity on like, where is this really originating from? Or where is this coming from? Because you're bypassing all that smoke and mirrors because they're opening it on their own workstation if they really had bad operations or SOPs, right? So that's kind mm -hmm. of an interesting takeaway. Yep. Um, but I, it, this is something that, I mean, I don't know if we have the ability to play, I mean, we could play around with it internally, but you know, it, it does lead to exposing a lot of information and some things we might not want to pick up. Um, I know we've always talked about setting up honey pots and Kind of mimicking those type of environments to get that kind of information but this is a this is the first time i've kind of been exposed to the back end and how it's kind of operates so it's really interesting it looks yeah. super easy to set up which is cool yeah uh, and the, the, there's and a lot of complexity on the back end right like what they're doing on the back end is amazing um yeah how they've obfuscated that the complexity is really cool 
What's cool is when you actually own a canary, even if it's just one, they give you a full portal to like manage all your soft tokens too. Like in this case, it's like you just know it's out there and it's going to hit your email, whatever email you sign up. And it's, I don't know how easy it is to manage that. Maybe through email, you can say disable or whatever. Right. But the interface to manage all this stuff is really well done from what I remember. So it's, a, it's just a really cool product, but it's cool they make this part free. Right. Right. And we do have a question about what kind of information gets exposed to somebody accesses that canary token. Um, and it's really just about um, being able to expose the, the IP address, location, user agents, um, anything that is uh, accessible via those headers and refers and, you know, the same kind of HTTP protocols that um, are, are kind of standard in those type of connections. But you could expose yourself, right? So it, it is, if you're the one clicking it or you're the one uh, exposed to that canary token. So. You just got to be careful how you deploy it and how you use that information. Yeah, and then the, uh, they like, for instance, they do have some things that are fast or slow, like they have a redirect that kind of redirects to whatever page you want it to. And what's cool about that is the slow one tries to grab as much information from the host as possible, right? So there's, right, right. there's more aggressive things and versus things that don't really pass as much information. Right, so, and he did mention SMTP type stuff. Um, I believe one of the examples was dropping this in HTML headers um, for emails, right? And baking that into to graphic yeah. emails to pull information. So depending on the the kind of infrastructure and where that canary token is embedded, you could pull some interesting information out and how it's used. So all right. Moving on. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Mike, you got the next big hot topic. All right, so this one's been interesting to follow. Um, this one is centered around the MITRE attack evaluation um, by MITRE Ingenuity. Um, so this is uh, this happened, I think the report came out today um, or yesterday, if I believe. Um, so basically, MITRE sets up an infrastructure um, that allows, I, I think they had 31 different vendor solutions CrowdStrike, I think uh, Signet was one of them, and they posted a, um, a quadrant of how good those product vendors did against the protections against that particular uh, attack sequence that they um, ran. So they focus in on Turla. Uh, so it's a Russian-based threat actor that they claim has infected victims in 45 different countries. Um, but that was the kind of the gold standard of that tech methodology and what they mimic from an uh, emulation perspective. And so what they would do is set up this infrastructure with um, the kind of the, the defensive hosts, the attack hosts, VPN into that system. They allowed these vendors to set up a VPN profile to get in. Um, you would set up your whatever endpoint, agent, whatever you have, and then they would bang against it. And so they're trying to track the detections against the different MITRE TTPs that were associated with Turla. Um, and this is where things got off the rails <laughs> pretty quickly. <laughs> uh, and so they're talking about, um, I guess, what they're really trying to track is visibility, right? Mm -hmm. And so can you detect it? Can you, can you, do you have the visibility to detect it? Is it um, based on AI, ML, whatever detection mechanisms you have, did it alert? And so they claim there's 143 different sub techniques that were tested. Um, I'm trying to find the information about uh, 19 attack steps, 143 sub 
steps or techniques. Uh, I guess they were expecting 143 different detections, and then they monitored the delay in real-time detections. So that would be more of an anomalous perspective if you're looking at um, a bunch of attacks over a time span, and then maybe detecting or alerting based on some anomalous activity over the course of that time span. Okay, so this is again where it went off the rails. These posts across all of cybersecurity, <laughs> Prospect had one this morning, um, SC Magazine is one of the posts uh, talking about Sinet had 100% of detections across all these different attack steps. Um, people reacted pretty strongly about yeah. these companies. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll try to censor myself. Um, about the 100% visibility perspective. Mm -hmm. So as I dove into how they set up the lab, what their focus was, um, and how they measured across these different tool sets and these, this one very particular threat actor group, Turla, who's been around for a while, who you should have detections for, and we need to break down what we mean by detection. Um, but people were lambasting CrowdStrike to say, okay, yeah, 100% protection. Now let's look at this very specific TTP web shell, right? Or PowerShell encoded commands or whatever else it is. You're not going to have 100% visibility. You got 100% visibility against this one actor, Turla, against probably a very specific set of IOCs, domains, hashes, URLs. Um, but this does not mean that you have 100% coverage against all threats in the wild, which we know is complete BS, right? Um, so as you continue to kind of pull back the layers of this, it's all marketing fluff. Um, I think MITRE, I love MITRE to death, um, but I think in their reporting of this and in their ability to allow organizations to build their own reports, kind of did cybersecurity a disservice, right? Um, I love CrowdStrike to death. I love these security tools. Like they do a great job, but to claim 100% anything is uh, is you don't see that. You never see that. Yeah. Never see. You never see that. And we <laughs> see it. We see it at Black Hat. We see it at RSA. We see the marketing right. and the copy saying 100% alerts covered, 100% detections, all this crap. Like it's it's complete crap. Um, and Scott is showing a really good breakdown of the TTP, the attack chain phase, the lab environment that they built out. Um, but it's so specific to that one threat. Right. I didn't realize that as I read the initial news feeds coming in um, until I actually dove into how they operationalized this whole evaluation. And it's it's disingenuous a little bit, right? Like this is not across all of cybersecurity, as we know that those detections are very ephemeral. They change. Um, that actor has been around for a while, probably hasn't updated because they've effectively hacked 45 different countries and different organizations, so why do you right. need to change, right? Um, we talk a lot about that, Scott, with, with the methodology of threat hunting mm -hmm. and uh, growing your skill set. Um, and so anyway, that's kind of my soapbox. Uh, really interesting to see the feedback on LinkedIn. I think people on LinkedIn are starting to get almost to the, you know, protected by the social media, and they're starting to go after these companies and start to talk a lot of crap. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say it's one thing cybersecurity folks are great at is yeah. when, they, when they hear something they don't like as a community, they become very vocal. So yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so what, was there was there a clear cut winner? Did they give the gold medal to someone? 
In this so case, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a bake-off. So there's multiple companies that scored 100%. I was going to kind of get into okay. what does that mean, right? So about that. Scott, if you go to that SE Magazine link today, yeah, um, I think you sent that over to me. If you scroll to the bottom, and you're oh, he has this chart here, yep, right? There you go. There's that quadrant. Uh, the signet is far right, which means they had 100% everything perfect. The, the, if you need a security product, go buy signet because you're good. Just yeah. so <laughs> what's right. what's interesting when I dug into this um, is everyone got multiple runs against it. And they were able to reconfigure their device if I they didn't that. pass all the marks, right? So <laughs> looking, yeah, I know. But, but looking at Signet, Signet, why they went so proud on this was they didn't have to do a, a configuration change. They got 100% without oh. the configuration change. Um, some other project products had to do a configuration change in order to identify, get all the marks, pass whatever it was. Which was interesting, right? The But the thing that I kind of took away is like, this um, measurement is not a measurement on, you know, uh, th not that they will catch these threats, but more what can these tools do, right? Like, where do they have visibility? What are some things they can detect? Um, and so it's it's more about the tool's capabilities because, you know, I've, I mean, we've all worked in environments with some of these tools and we're not in environments that we know our own, but when you go to the dashboard, you see hundreds and or thousands of alerts, right? And yep. that, that's the difference being in an environment where you know there's other activity that those alerts don't mean anything when there's enough noise in a production environment that you're gonna ignore those anyways, right? But if you were to say, hey, we put you in a pretty neutral environment, we put these attacks out there, can you detect them? Yes. So how does that help you? Not it helps knowing that you can have visibility and you got to figure out how to deal with that, but it doesn't necessarily help you with the threats specifically, right? Um, right. But one thing I did really like was, so it was this, um, you can go to the results and they had two different, or no, three different, well, two main <clears throat> scenarios, right? They called it carbon and snake and they basically were two different attack chains that they kind of evaluated. Mm -hmm. um, but you can like pick an attack chain, um, and then you can pick, I'm just going to pick the first one. I'm not picking on anybody, but it pulls up and you can kind of see it, how they did per attack, right? Did they miss things? Did they get things? That kind of thing, right? But can what was click, really... Oh, sorry. sorry. Can you go up and click sign it real quick? Just curious to see the difference between that and sign it. It's another side by side, right? So you can see they scored higher. Well, this one only says 10 of 11, so I don't know if they got 100%. Ooh. No. But... but yeah, or you I don't can know. Pick configuration change too, if you wanted to see how they did with or without right. it. Right. So that's the other thing is, um, I don't remember what button it is. Is it this one? Yeah. It's a great website though. Like I, I love yeah. the detail on this. This is cool. Yeah. So you can, you can. What's great if you own these tools is you can click the configuration change button, and you can actually see as my tool configured like theirs are to get 100. percent So you have something to measure against. There's right? a value. Right, right. Yeah. So you can say, hey, if I want to get a, if I want to get hundred percent, I can configure it like them. But if I do that, what does that mean in yeah. my environment? Is there a lot of noise? Um, right. So, so that's one thing. The other thing that I really liked mm. was if you can see these screenshots. I don't. I mean, they're not going to be super clear from people looking on, but there are screenshots, and I, I wonder if I can, I think I can blow one of them up, right? And it shows what that detection looks like in tool. So mm. then you can kind of see what is the information does a tool 
pull back huh. and for each specific technique that it detects. And as a threat hunter, I love screenshots because I feel like I can pull so much information out of a screenshot and there's technical detail that if I'm able to actually squint my eyes, I'd probably figure out how to make that bigger for myself, even looking at this. I can dig into it. There might be some technical data that I can build for myself if I don't have this tool, or I can figure out what I need to do to maybe tune this so I can benefit from this detection. So, so this TTP right here is phishing. Right. The tactic was phishing. Mm -hmm. What was the uh, the sub-technique or whatever? In the uh, so they talked about he clicked in an email link and it talks about what he did. He opened up, he downloads basically an NTF version EXE. Then he goes into, he executes it manually. Then it's an obfuscated file. So basically it has an embedded installer in the resource section in the file. Um, if we talk about hunting versus detections, where is the difference here, right? So these are cool. around, are they picking up those indicators of compromise based on Turla, based on their TTPs and techniques? Or they, it's not broad. It so this is broad, where, so right? this is where you're, you're, you're going on a very good point in which we talk about is, yes, you can build detections for things you want to hunt for, behaviors, but when you do that, you end up with a lot of false positives because mm -hmm. you're pulling on common behaviors shared across environments. So some of these things, um, like, I mean, user execution, I know that's what that's called, and it talks about executing something from an email. So you might be able to go off of Outlook executing something as a parent right. process. But how often is that going to happen and be benign, right? So right. it might be better to hunt for that behavior than it is to say, I want alerts every time Outlook opens a document. That that might not be great to alert on, right? Right. So in this in this evaluation, is the detection outlook opening something else? And were there also thousands of other events? Because here's the problem with this. This is a clean lab with other without any really other clean, data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? So there's not other traffic flowing in. There's not users using that platform on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And so if they if they were literally just tracking outlook opening something else and no traffic was going through that environment and then that happened, cool, mm -hmm. we have a detection. Awesome. But if you had that in a, a financial organization and then you started to run this process and this evaluation, it's going to blow up your system. That's going to be hundreds of thousands of alerts in that time span. And how do you weed through that? So that's why I feel like this whole evaluation was a little disingenuous because it was a clean lab, one attack, at least from what I understand from the documentation. Um, and as you know, Alex, we stand up labs and environments and we try to mimic real world activities as much as possible. It's a hard yeah. problem to solve at scale, um, especially when you're talking about this kind of activity. So, I mean, you need yeah. that that benign data flowing or else it's going to yeah. be, oh, we can detect against Outlook opening something. Because yeah. yeah, so if you traffic, you win, right? The good thing is, is it establishes what kind of visibility some of these tools have and some of these techniques like outlook executing something if that's i don't even know if that's the real detection behind the scenes but if sure. that is detection like great it, you can see execution so you know the tool can do that but if there was some more advanced technique you're like oh i didn't know that this tool can pick up on these you know, underlying things that a lot of other tools i didn't know that that they can pick up on so so i, I think people are misusing the information, which is a common thing, right? Especially when you get these reports, they can give you scores like 100%. I think they should have 
found a different way to score so that you didn't have like this pass fail because we're all brought up with like 100 percent is perfect and you know 70 is barely passing and you know there's already a way we think about scoring that way we should have just done something more categorical or just you know weighted rates whatever good bad ugly i don't know but um so the data is fascinating and people should really look at the report, but they should, it should not have been leveraged the way it was in social media yeah. from the vendors themselves. I mean, yeah, that website's amazing. And to your point, if you go in there and click the tools that you have mm-hmm. and run through this and see the screenshots, the TTPs, the information available, the configuration changes, that, I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? Um, but also for tools like, I'm curious on the configuration chain side because things like a CrowdStrike or an EDR and XER, typically yep. there's not a lot of configuration changing you need to make for those type of environments, right? Let's pull it up. Let's see. Alex, yeah. like okay. if you deploy, you know, if you deploy a CrowdStrike, yeah. like you're not, you can turn on policy, but typically you want a lot of that on. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting that you you might have configuration change, right? So private description configuration. Yeah, it's just enable everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say it's everything. All. <laughs> don't turn off anything. Yeah. Which, which I don't, I don't know from your guys' experience. When you enable everything, is that a good thing in a production environment? Do you run into issues there? Alex, what do you got? I mean, you get a lot of noise. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, yeah. And yeah, wading through everything when you're trying to search for something, you know, it, it's a little tougher, but it does give you that real world, you know. So that's why I like if if you have a tool, I know some tools and this is where, you know, this is going to disclose my bias black box versus not black box. Right. If I looked at this and I saw what a tool is capable of and I can see what it can detect, but I know that I can go in and tweak things so that I'm like, okay, I like this detection. But for me, I need to tweak it so that it's not loud and proud Hmm. Um, that I can use. But if there's a black box tool, that's basically it's a binary enable disable i would hate that capability because it's like i really like what this is looking at i have no way to control it other than just turn it on or off um, uh, i'm gonna if microsoft is listening integrate sysmon <laughs> just integrate it have some toggles and yeah. stuff on please because i mean <laughs> that's exactly what you're talking about scott like the ability and yeah. in, in alex we deal with this all the time in our lab to be mm-hmm. able to toggle things off and on when you need to. So if there is a new actor that is looking at a registry key, that we find the intelligence ahead of a CrowdStrike putting that in place, because what they do on their back end, you have no control. Yeah, yeah. You can deploy Sysmon and say, I want to look at these registry keys, right? And you've yeah. done it, right, Alex? So you've deployed yep. new configurations based on the things we're looking for from a hunting perspective. Yeah. Um, it's easy for us to do. Again, as gear engineers in the past, we could do it, but a large org, them just deploying Sysmon is an issue, right? But it gives you that that tailoring to be able to turn things off and on um, to protect yourself and grow that that standard visibility document, basically. You're documenting visibility uh, in real time, right? Right, so, that's so here's another another great point that I think you kind of you're making me segue to different points, but you know what, one of the things that I working in the security operations in general and working with management, you get asked the question, what kind of coverage do we have if an attack mm-hmm. comes out and things like that? I mean, we we like it because we build our own content, so we can say what we can or cannot cover on. But when you have a black box solution, 
how do you give that answer, right? How do you say, hey, this covers against nine of the seven things, but seven of the nine things, I said that correctly, um, that they, this actor does when you just know that the tool, you're just going off of faith, right? This yeah. our, our tool should catch this because it's really good and we pay a lot of money for it. Like that's not a good place for a security person to put their name on. And it's not a good place for management to say, well, that sounds good. That's reasonable, right? Um, so, you know, that's another problem with these black box type things is how do you evaluate your tool versus a threat without being able to emulate exactly what they do and test it? Cybersecurity insurance is the problem. And that's, again, a whole other topic. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to uh, get into the, the MGM thing later, but I'm yeah. curious to see who their insurance provider was. But again, we have, everybody has cybersecurity insurance, I hope. Um, but in that, they were like, hey, do you have an EDR solution installed? Oh, but there's a lot of checkboxes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But that doesn't really define your protection, right? Um, and so you get into, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a weird space right now because it's hard to get granular enough to understand that you're protected. You have to kind of go at that high level pie in the sky yeah. situation. So, um, and yeah, it's just, it's, again, this website's great. I, I'm not, in this article, I'm not, I think this, this process is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, oh, it's a must doing, have. Yeah, but what they're doing, though, is they're, they're alleviating some of the stress of cybersecurity people to evaluate the tools in a POV, a POC they're, perspective. I think right? they're taking away some of the accountability for some of these vendors. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yeah. hey, if you can pass this, then you basically can say we're done. Right. Versus saying, no, you, you need to you're displaying what your tools capabilities are and what you have to offer and, and what your tool can kind of just do in mm -hmm. general. Right. Not that, hey, if you have our tool, we'll stop all threats. So if you go back to that, that heat map real quick. Which one's the heat map? This one? Uh, No, I'm sorry. The. um. SC Magazine post. Yeah. So I would actually trust the vendors in that cluster more than the vendors in the upright. Yeah, so like, there's, a, there's a lot of vendors in that cluster that basically had the same response uh, to this. I wouldn't trust the ones in the upright because I feel like that is not. So I like. I like a lot of the vendors in the right though, right? <laughs> as far as like what I could do with them. So like, I mean, that's that's true. Like, I feel like Cyber Reason, Palo Alto, Signet. I'm I, talking like the extreme upright. I'm talking like that. that no, I know. Um, I don't want to name names because I don't want to have biases. But like, there's some cool tool capabilities that I do appreciate that some of these like top dog vendors have. Mm -hmm. Um. But you know, I mean, every every Goliath Scott, it's David, right? So it's just one of those mm -hmm. things. Anyway, I, I don't want to get canceled on this podcast. We're talking crap about security vendors. So <laughs> we'll take a step back. We'll pass it over to Alex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Segway. Yeah. Segway. Beep that out. So Alex, what do you got for us? Yeah. So um, what I brought to the table, I find a little interesting. I saw what yesterday, I think, or two days ago. Uh, it stands for an article that Dark Reading posted. Um, it references a blog from of normal security highlighting the impact of generative AI and Nigerian print scams, you know, that everybody gets. Um, long story short, uh, you know, me, you guys, a lot of the listeners I know, um, the Nigerian print scam is one where an anonymous email is sent to a victim from a person of Nigerian nobility. 
uh, being wrong and robbed, you know, the whole spiel. And in it, they're promising to repay the person in a large sum of given financial assistance. So, you know, give me this and I'll give you that type of thing. Uh, sounds kind of crazy, but it's working in some capacity because they're still happening and still being sent out. Um, you know, the majority of people would typically be able to spot the spelling and grammar errors that immediately throw up red flags. Like, oh, they spelled my name wrong. Like, they call me Alejandra for some reason or something like that. Um, but the article talks about generative AI starting to be used and eliminating those spelling grammar errors and making them more effective to a degree. You know, and uh, in, in retrospect, the article mentions that there was a researcher of interest in what you guys think about this that said that the errors and red flags that are in it actually serve as a way to getting rid of the people who wouldn't fall for it. And that the true target right. they have are the gullible people to begin with. So, I mean, Absolutely. it kind of makes sense, but yeah. Uh, so my take is it makes sense that they would be using it for their advantage if it's not their first language or second language even. I can see how I fill in those gaps and making them more believable. Um, and, you know, the question I started going to is, uh, in a general sense, do you think generative AI would be able to make campaigns and malware stuff more effective um, like this, like this simple uh, example? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know what you guys thought. I think... Um, all right, here's my quick example. I'm just now kind of ruminating on this. Like, you have an amazing corpus of data on Facebook and LinkedIn mm. about personas how you think, how you talk, how you act. Mm. Instagram's great too. So, you imagine if you can scrape every post that a person made on LinkedIn mm. and build a profile against that individual and then leverage that individual's voice. Uh, you could you could do some things, right? Yeah. Um, especially via email. Again, if you're not looking specifically at the from address, and they obfuscate that who is who is actually sending that information, and you can sound like that person in that email. That's the thing yeah. that we so we've seen phishing emails across our ten years of experience. Yep. And it's always those ones like, "Hey, I'm the CEO. I need a gift card for eight hundred dollars. Go to this place." <laughs> like that's not how that person talks. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you get an email that says, hey, you know, it, it can talk in that voice because it can have that corpus of data, how they post on LinkedIn or their their social kind of um, personality, that gets scary. Yeah. Right. Um, nice. And nice. Yeah, it's exactly what uh, CISO events is talking about. Basically saying using LinkedIn is just like your way to build those things. Yeah. yeah. Speaking that's of which. Mike, did you get my $500 gift card that you asked for? I did. I did. It's in the mail. Okay. It, it, All right. Just, just check. It's fired. Routing numbers. Written so, okay. <laughs> it was interesting when you threw this, and I was reading through some of this, and the Microsoft reacher who posed the question, why do Nigerian scammers say they're from Nigeria? Yes. Right? And it was like that response was, well, they don't want to waste their time on people that aren't gullible. And mm. I was like, yeah, what a like a brilliant move for efficiency, right? Like, mm. I don't want to have to go back and forth because like I'll tell you, I mean, you guys have seen it. When I get hit with those spam type stuff, I'll try to talk to them and make up crazy Hilarious. stories, and I I share them <laughs> with the team, and I make it you know kind of entertaining for at least myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for us too, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we we had a campaign. I, I, yeah, we uh, we spent basically like a couple of hours running this guy through the ringer about gift cards and like it was amazing it's fun to watch it like we needed to post on reddit or something like it's so yeah, great um so, so yeah there there is that that i i really just kind of love to kind of understand like these guys 
like you feel like they have all the time in the world, but they must not. And they must spend a lot of time sending these things out and they don't want to waste their time either. But mm-hmm. you talk about generative AI, I think it can help build things for sure. Mm-hmm. But when you have something specific, so I remember reading an article, must have been like a, a month or two ago now, where they were trying to use chat GPT and how well can it discern phishing emails in general. And they're like, oh, it can detect them, but the false positive rate's still too high. It's only like 80% accurate. I'm like, oh, good. It's it's just as good as every other tool, right? Like, so like, is it really bad? No, probably not. But when you get very specific as far as what you want to detect, so like, say you want it, to, you want to get a, an AI model to, or language model to target this specific type of scam, I think it would be be very good at it right because it's very specific it'd be like okay so you have someone who's asking for money from a foreign country and it's over a certain amount or they make it seem like you win something but you have to move money like it can probably you can teach it to discern discern those things um so i think there's there's value like okay maybe they can get better with writing these phishing emails and scams but we can also get better with very similar technology and you know just like if if you were to see these emails, you know right away they're a scam, right? And yeah. just and so if you could do that, then for something this specific, then so could something like a language model. Um, so and people seem to be more receptive of having something like Skynet read their email versus say you yeah. and me, um, because it becomes personal if you can read their email. So we can't protect them that way. But I think that's a viable solution. But you'd have to have almost a language model for different types of attacks, right? So that that might be the the burden there. Has anybody's family member been hit with this Nigerian scam? My mom. Oh, has. I just remember, yeah, <laughs> back in the day, man. I remember this used to blow people up, and you'd hear these stories like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, yeah. It's a uh, you know we always like, so us in IT, cybersecurity, engineering, our parents leverage us for all things IT. Yep. Right. And so like my mom and not to call her out, I don't know if she listens to the show, but <laughs> they're now starting, well, now. And, yeah, now starting to send these text messages to the phone about, hey, Mexico cured COVID. Click the link to find out. Right. And like they're not getting as egregious on the subject or the topic. So like now if you see Nigerian prints, you're like, oh, this is a, you know, it's been around long enough where I feel like they should stop with this kind of campaign. Switch it up. <laughs> they made like 700 million or something. Yeah, they're yeah. making money. They're not going to stop. Or 700k, 700,000 or something. I don't know where they got that number from. But yeah. it's interesting the shift to things that you can hit target markets and be like, hey, I, if they can find the data, and there's been plenty of government data that's been exposed to say, this person took the COVID vaccine, let's send them information about COVID. They're probably going to yeah. click the link. So that's, right? that's what always interests sure. me is some of the scams that I've seen. Or know people that like are close to me that have been hit by, like the attacker knew more than just like I'm gonna try to trick you with some generic thing. And an example of this, I saw this happen a lot. Where, for instance, uh, people were calling parents and grandparents from you know impersonating somebody, saying, "Hey, I'm stuck in jail. I need money. I got in trouble. I need, I'm stuck here, whatever." And while that was going on, that person was in the air on a flight, so they can't call that person because they're trapped in like a you know three or four hour flight so there's no way to like verify right and so it's like gosh that's that's crazy to think that what information did they scrape or have access to or what was breached that wasn't disclosed 
to mm. give them that information and to run those scam campaigns. That always blows my mind because you never hear like, oh, yeah, Delta was breached for and all their stuff was going. It's like, well, that information got disclosed somehow because they, that's not just random. Right. It's not so perfectly planned. Right. So I'm thinking about another time about talking about about automation and being able to just set that up to run. And you just sit back and like all of that happens immediately oh, and automatically based on the data. Whew. I'm glad I'm on it for like a, the, the the pure side, right? I think there's a lot of cybersecurity people who could like go the dark route, right? The dark side of cyber and make a lot of money. But it's mm. it's been amazing to, to see the community and the people like we're all trying to make this space better, right? Um, yeah. Um, so, Alex, were you involved in helping with the, the scam? Have you been involved in any of these type of scams? Like, no, like, no I haven't. I haven't. I haven't, thankfully. I mean, other than my mom asking about this this text that she got and she clicked on it and wanted to know, uh, you know, actually, speaking of the jail thing that you're talking about, Scott, uh, my mom got one about one of my sisters, you know, being in jail. She freaked out and like called everybody thinking that yeah. she was in jail. So she was like, where do I send the money? You know, I'm going to send the money and stuff like that. It was like four or five years ago. And man, it's, uh, I guess I was on a receiving end to a degree because I had to go to her phone, delete it and actually flipped it over because she clicked a bunch of different links. Uh, <laughs> I was just freaking out and hitting everything. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I guess that's the benefit. And when these things happen, I have to realize that we've been trained for however many years to understand these indicators. And there's people who have not been trained to understand these indicators. It's it's like, so I use the example, like pick any sport you want. I'll use basketball. It's like saying, hey, I'm going to take someone who's never seen the game, put them on the court and expect them to know how to dribble, how to shoot and how to do all these types of things. And we're right. like blown away that like they can't do it. And you're like, no, but we've been exposed. We've been part of the game for so long. It becomes second nature for us, right? Yeah. And then you have this person over there who's like kicking the ball. Like, the ball? Like, what are you doing? You know, so it's... Yeah. You had to bring up basketball, huh? Well, <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 just the, it's the dominant sport where, you know, I, I reign superior on the team. No big deal, but... Yeah, Scott, we're going to we're gonna run back that uh, that game eventually. Oh, man. When you, <laughs> when, when you for hear, your health, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know getting better. I'm getting better. I'm running now. We'll get there. So, uh, so yeah. So, I don't know. Um, any other things we want to touch on uh, as far as that goes? Or we want to jump to some of our discussion topics? Yeah, let's go through the discussions. I think that was great. I mean, we covered down basically an hour of, of topics. Um, and I think now we're moving into more of just like the high-level discussions that we want to talk about. I believe I'm up first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um this topic is centered around patch management and it's the uh the elephant in the room <laughs> cybersecurity, large organizations protecting yourself um it's a it's an ugly baby right there's it teams security team there's a lot of teams involved in this process um and there's a link there scott if you want to post ibm has a really good breakdown of what patch management means how it relates to different environments, what it is to patch, um, and effectively, it's 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 centered around vulnerabilities, bugs, zero days, anything that can cause um, unwanted access to a host or a potential vulnerability to a host, and the ability to patch that in a way that does not 
bring down the business unit that you're in effectively. So at a high level, you want to be able to patch something, correct an issue or a bug without taking down uh, downtime, right? Without affecting that business unit's ability to make money or affect the overall business operations. So that's where it gets tricky, right? So if we talk about large orgs with 5,000 endpoints across different business organizations, and there's a Microsoft patch that comes out, typically patch Tuesdays. Most organizations will wait to like a Thursday or Friday to actually patch the next week in case there's any issues. To roll that out across that large scale is hard to do, mm -hmm. to do that often and immediately. Um, to test and validate and to, to make sure that that patch isn't going to break down infrastructure. Um, to make sure that that user is not going to effectively lose hours of work and time to be able to work. Um, and then to roll that patch back if there's an issue. So all that goes into this concept. It's freaking hard to do. And think and about I, like remote work, managing that on top of it. If something breaks, right? Yeah. Right? And I, I feel for those IT people, those engineers, Alex, we've been in these people's shoes that have to manage these large organizations and release patches out. But it is crucial to being able to protect against the things we've been talking about for the past hour, right? Yeah. Um, long-standing vulnerabilities or bugs or the zero day is a different concept and we can talk about that later that's an unknown unknown that happens and you need to be able to react quickly and responsibly but again you have to be able to trust those environments to be able to roll those things out in a stage manner dev test prod kind of using the same development methodology that most developers use to be able to test roll back qa those tests um it's a it's a it's a beast um, and Alex, you've done this for a while. I mean, we worked together at Foreground. Um, yeah. Moved on and kind of ran a different team somewhere else. But like your experience with patch management, love it, hate it, <laughs> different. <laughs> what do you got? I mean, I love it if everything's working right, right. And I think the biggest thing is identifying that baseline. I mean, it, okay. it's it's great to have that baseline, get everyone to a certain level. Um, but maintaining that baseline is probably the hardest thing in the world. And, you know, priority patching, finding, you know, X, Y, and Z getting patched before others. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about a little bit in automation, but because it helped a lot in this, you know, in this instance. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I don't know if I said I love it. It's necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we're talking about specifically the operating system right now. I've talked about Windows, there's Linux, Mac OS. Oh man, the third party stuff is poof, that's, that's where it gets tricky. So that's when it gets tricky. Yeah, right. Call it eleven. Yeah. Now I have compatibility issues across key business software that I might not be able to update, or they mm -hmm. haven't updated in time. So there's a there's a weird delta. Um yeah. it gets it gets very tricky. And what's really interesting about this patch management is now that it's starting to get rolled up in the EDR solutions, yep. which makes sense because you already have an agent on the host. Mm -hmm. Let me go ahead and manage that host using that agent, like CrowdStrike has it, I'll, I'll call them out, um, where you don't have to stand up a specific SCCM platform. That's a Windows. Well, there's platform. an advantage to that too, because those EDR, platforms have visibility to installed software 
um, yep. that you usually have to get third-party solutions to then get that visibility already, right? Unless you have some homegrown and you use some baked-in scripting and stuff that you're savvy with, right? Which a lot of people don't build that way. Absolutely. So. Uh, so, Scott, you've dealt with it, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's funny, like, I've always been, because, you know, patching, when you look at a lot of the security uh, protection reporting or whatever, like patching is like one of the top things. If you can't do anything else, patching is one of the most important. That's like they always say, and it's and it's been reported, anyways. And it, and it has some ground to it. Um, and it was interesting. I was watching the poll that we pushed out, and for a while there, everything was setting sitting at ones across the board. And I was like, man, everyone kind of feels indifferent about patching. And then it changed, and so now most people say uh, they have major challenges, which I feel like that's how a lot of people feel because. Um, it's a complex problem. And this is kind of why I think it's a complex problem for everybody. So I'm not trying to oversimplify it and say that everyone's wrong because it is a complex problem. Um, but we're trying to solve patching with a single process. And I feel like the bigger the organization, the more they have to say, we can't have this dynamic process based on how assets are categorized and how assets are used and you know whatever. They try to say, we're gonna manage it in this one monolithic way we're going to make sure everything is all going to hit this baseline. We're all going to do these types of things. And, and so what ends up happening is you have this one size fits 20% solution, right? Mm. We're like, all right, we're really good at patching these things. There's some things that like behind, we run into some problems, but I've, I think what I've learned and I've looked at a lot of organizations and a lot of people that talk about their business and how they patch and their success stories. And taking away their success stories and kind of building that into like, hey, if I were to build a program for patching, how can I leverage their success for a piece of my program? Not replace my program because apparently theirs works better. And an example, right? So I remember there's one, it's a smaller business. So obviously size and scale, you know, dramatically changes your solution here. Mm -hmm. But they just kind of gave up on the manual patching process. And they basically said they're going to auto patch every end user system, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, and there's, I don't think they did it in waves necessarily where they had, but obviously I would probably say, okay, if my organization is big and I'm looking at end user machines, especially Windows kind of made it simple, right? You can't like pick and choose your patches as much anymore. It's like cumulative. Um, How do you go you pick, back to, so keep going, but like rolling back that patch if something gets generated. Well, so, and, and the reason why I say this is because one organization that said they did this, when they calculated the hours, <laughs> that it took to fix an issue versus manually do patching and monitoring for this, they actually realized they saved time fixing the one catastrophic issue a year than they did manually patching everything, you know, throughout the year, right? Which is kind of a weird. I mean, obviously, if you're if something goes down that is your revenue maker, that's not acceptable, right? But when you can identify things you can automatically patch where you can potentially save that time and only have to address IT resources once every year or two years that actually might be a cost savings um that right. you don't realize because the pain point everyone feels right like no one wants to go through that and then maybe you come up with not so much the process and how do we manually patch everything we come up with a process for how do we deal with break fix issues and maybe you mature that right um so that was like an idea right that's one of the things and then the other is um looking at instead of patching based on um, vulnerability specific scores or um, system criticality maybe you do like a category based thing right like where does the system sit as far as exposure which i think a lot of people do like if things are exposed in the edge like we patch those things first which i think is great strategy that's something that should be maintained 
Um, but the classifications um, could also be like, is the system openly accessible across the network? Like any host can get to it. Or is, does it perform a specific function that is a critical function, like it deals with authentication or communication across the business or networking in general, or is it a specific app and how's that app critical? Um, that kind of thing. I think when you start prioritizing and categorizing things like that, that kind of helps in your approach. And I know people build this in the patch management programs in general, but there was a study and it was interesting. And I think it was like the Aurora vulnerability, um, if I'm remembering it correctly, but basically CISA, they were really proud that they were able to get that whole thing patched based on their visibility of organizations that had things that were vulnerable in six months. Or six, was it six months or six weeks? Maybe it's six months. Sounds like a long time. Yeah, I think it was, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say six weeks because I think that's more accurate and it wasn't terrible, but it was kind of like a, we gotta address this major issue that it was like a critical infrastructure thing. Sure. There was one organization that was able to do it within 10 days across the entire organization and it was a sizable organization. And what was interesting, their solution to the problem was they just baked in a cultural change based on um, giving people scores um, on the systems they owned. And what they found was when they rolled this program out saying, hey, your system is at this level, so you score like a B or a C, they made sure not to score anyone low off the rip because psychologically they found that if you have an A or a B, you want to maintain it. But if you're already are sitting at an F, a C, or a D, you're like, well, this is just a waste of my time, right? Like, yeah, yeah. and so what they did when this big, so they had the system already in place and rolling out, and they and what they would do is they would rank and risk their their things that need to be patched, and people can look at some dashboard they made as far as what would be the most impactful thing to raise my score, mm -hmm. and um, so when the the Aurora thing rolled out. That was the most impactful thing. And they can say, hey, yeah, if you don't get this patch by the next reporting cycle, you're going to drop like a whole letter grade. Everybody cool. saw that. Everybody took it as a priority to patch. Like they didn't have to do much communicating. They didn't have to do much prioritization. And it was funny to me because I hear that story and I hear like everyone complains that patching so hard and it's going to break things. And then all of a sudden with that system, everyone's like, I want a patch. So they make it happen and it doesn't break things. Like some of that is like, uh, you know. That's super interesting, right? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I like that psychology of why you need a patch because if i'm in accounting and i have my report due two days from now and i yeah. have to patch i'm and i don't know why i want to patch or why i need to patch i'm gonna be less reluctant i'm gonna be more reluctant to patch right because i need to get my work done in that time frame but if i know as a culture as a whole from a scorecard perspective as you're talking about that if i don't patch there's a potential for my department, overall organization. It makes it personal, the right? The person, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be called out. Yeah. I'm going to be singled out and be like, oh, that guy didn't patch. So, like, he's yeah. the reason why. Like, that guy from MGM. Again, we'll have that conversation a little bit. Go back with him, whoever he is. Whew. He's struggling. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I just think there's interesting <laughs> solutions. And I think our problem with patch management today because environments have gotten more complex, especially with more cloud-based things, more remote things, more SaaS, more whatever, right? Is we can't have this sledgehammer solution where it's like, hey, if things are so far behind, we have to patch because it's a timeline thing. Or we have things where you only patch critical things and everything else gets in the time. Like, like there's gotta be a more intimate, if lack of a better term, 
way to address the issue. Um, and I don't necessarily have the solution for that, but I can just speak to the solution that a lot of people use today clearly don't work. But we still take everyone else's solution and say, hey, this is kind of the business standard. So as long as we do this, we're not the worst, even though you're not improving or moving the mark, right? I think, uh, and so we have Riptide ask, or to make a statement that threat actors look for those older, lower severity uh, vulnerabilities because everybody wants to patch critical high. Absolutely. I can stuff on the low, right? And so, oh, we don't worry about low. Let's just get the critical high. But if I'm going to, you know, you can still manipulate those lows and those mediums to get access. Oh, yeah. I, I think right? I've talked about it on here before the pwn to own competition. Um, it's it's about breaking out of um, hypervisors and sandbox uh, yeah. web browsers and, and even devices. And almost every single one of those attacks is using a few mediums and low vulnerabilities in combination. And they're able to, to achieve what a critical might do, right? right. And, and that's the problem is we bec we've become so inundated with vulnerabilities in general. And we've come accustomed that, hey, lows and mediums are okay or they're acceptable risks without actually understanding what that means. Do you think critical high, medium, low? So you think that actually correlates to the, the ease of um, uh, exploitation and the maturity level you need and the severity of exploitation if that were to happen. Yeah. But like, I feel like the lower scale medium and low means you need to understand how to leverage those to effectively utilize those in an environment. So the ease of use might be high, but it still could be critical as far as the exposure if those are actually leveraged. That's another reason why I don't like the like CVS scoring because I think they do a great job categorizing vulnerabilities but the score really should be down to the organization based on the asset which takes a lot of time if you got a thousands of assets how do you risk and rate all those but like if you have literally a device theoretically it's air gapped and it has a thousand critical vulnerabilities do you need to patch it right uh, like or do you need to spend your time versus right. something else right like it's like that's where organizations need to have a way um based on their priorities, their business models, their processes on what is really important, how we manage that. But also there's the segmentation piece, right? Like if you're gonna have to think, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna have time to patch everything and you're gonna prioritize critical things, you gotta make sure things that aren't being maintained can't talk to things that are being maintained, right? Like there is, there is like that sort of the zero trust ideology, which I still don't like the whole zero trust ideology because if you did true zero trust, everything would break. But you know, like the concept, right? Like that's where you start getting into that that mantra of, hey, how do we control what communicates where and how? So, yeah. Uh, I can... And I think I think we do a really good job of that because I know Alex and I talk about that a lot. We see these vulnerabilities pop, and we're like, all right, so is that system exposed? It's 18 layers deep in a VPN infrastructure that has no outside access. Nobody's gonna hit it. You know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, Docker, as that was growing in the space, there was a root remote execution vulnerability. I'm like, yeah, well, if your Docker host is exposed to the internet and they can get access to the host, yeah. cool, you can exploit it. But like, you have, you have to do 15 other things to actually exploit that thing underneath. But if I already have root access to the host, I can do a lot of other things than expose Docker, right? Like, it, it doesn't take into the 
the logic side of the exploitation. It's just the the impact and severity as um, Shimoni. I think I said that right. Sorry if I, I butchered that, but you're talking about the impact. impact. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's one of those things too. Like I I, I hate that I'm, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit because almost most of the pen tests I've seen that have been successful once they get in is they find that that system that has not been maintained and somehow leverage some authentication that is legacy version so it's dumbed down and they can break credentials or they can gain access and then leverage who logs into that periodically and you know you know jump around and becomes almost a pivot point or a um a beachhead in some way so like there are issues with leaving things behind so i think you need to have standards for like hey after so much time we have to bring the baseline up like you're talking about alex like that that old men mentality, I feel like there is that baseline you have to move, but how you move it, I think, is what people need to work better at, right? Yeah. Um, what pieces do you move first? I mean, it's a chess game. That's what cybersecurity really is. What pieces should exactly. you move to take away that advantage so that you can still maintain and manage without pulling your hair out and ending up like all of us without hair? So, <laughs> is this the bulb? My this guess? really is. I just I was, noticed that I was too. Say, you're wearing a hat, Scott. You're not showing I, up. I, I, right? I did well. I well. <laughs> love it. We got to rename this Out of the Woods. It's like a <laughs> cyber podcast or something. We'll figure it out. We'll workshop it. Yeah. Workshop. Yeah. Cool. Uh, right, so, yeah. Um, I think Alex, you're up. Yeah, it's hot oh, topics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my topic, I'll be touching on automation, which we talked about, you know, decent amount of times already. Uh, favorite word of mine from what I've been doing. Uh, so it's been used to, you know, create systems and processes in an environment to take out the heavy lift of manual operations, give it more time to do more important stuff, you know, in general. Use of solutions like, you know, Ansible, Terraform, like Puppet too. I think Puppet's one of them, right? Um, you know, it's huge in a day to day. You know, for example, uh, what Mike was talking about earlier with patch management, that's a huge thing, you know, building off of that, allowing an administrator to get systems patched, installed and modifications, getting all that done quickly. Um, a, a good example is when we first started with, you know, the solution that we use, I had to mainly update things to, you know, uninstall, reinstall, do the whole kit and caboodle, whatever you want to call it. And it was time consuming. So yeah, you know? break that down a little bit. So like we, we run a lab at Cyborg, right, with a number of different hosts, different configurations, different levels of patching. Uh, it gets complicated as we're trying to manage tools and hosts and users and all of that, right? So- Users being me when I complain. Yeah. <laughs> users being oh, when I'm like, hey, can you do yeah. this? I need this, can you figure this out? Yeah. Snapshots, right? Like all of that. So I guess break down, like not going into these about how leveraging automation kind of help with that flow. Well, it helped because of the, the VM environment, like you said, we have so many different machines um, and, you know, we have specific ones like, you know, Windows based, Linux based. Um, and with automation, you know, was able to kind of click a button, you know, focus on another task and, you know, it creating that playbook, creating that script uh, was able to shut down. Or, I mean, start it up, modify, shut down, snapshot, all that from a script and you can customize and kind of put it together. Um, you know, it definitely helped in my multitask skill. Uh, allowed me to kind of refocus and everything. Um, I don't know if that was what you were kind of getting. That might because you want me to break yeah, down even more. So, and then like being able to find infrastructure as code because that's kind of the the marketing term that they threw on top of like things like Terraform, Ansible. Being able to find a template, and it, we're spinning up lab environments in AWS for certain things where we can just define all that in a in a, a file and hit yep. deploy, 
and it all spins up, it all spins down. We're able to manage that. So like that that's where otherwise no, it take hours to plunk. Set the you know, like all of those different things is it, it's it's tough. Well one thing to hit on that like I mean you mentioned cloud, the thing that I I love that you know cloud's all I mean I I I know what cloud is, but I've kind of avoided playing in the cloud because one, and no one wants to give me rights to anything where I previously worked because they're scared of what no, I might do. You get no rights. <laughs> but second, like, you know, we've been look, looking at hunt packages for cloud, right? And what's fantastic is the ability for me to basically automate or emulate based on how, because cloud's all API driven, right? And so now I can like automate so many things based on emulating certain behaviors and then detecting those behaviors and then doing certain things. So like that part's really cool to see tools are being built more for automation than they have in the past as well. It's kind of where I'm going with that. Yep. Yeah. Well, automation's a four letter word for me right now. I know. You, <laughs> you have a talking. special place. Yeah. It's a special place <laughs> when I hear it. I'm like, hmm. like I, I say a lot of four letter words when I hear automation get thrown out. Um, love, is, love is one of them, right? Love. Without, yeah, love. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> uh, I think, and and I was involved in a sore platform when the the automation wars were happening. We'll call it that, right? So we had yeah, Splunk, we had Demisto, uh, we had Swimlane, we had we had a lot of different tools, marketing and pushing the security automation orchestration aspect, and all of it was genuinely trying to automate the manual repetitive crap things that analysts have to do on a day-to-day to uh triage yeah, alerts and get away know, from fatigue and my biggest problem with a lot of those tools though is i feel like out of the box they spent more emphasis on response than any of the other things because you got to think about cybersecurity and i know i know that was a selling point Space yeah. that we're in, it's really hard to define static use cases for every organization, yeah. and define the inputs, the outputs, the integrations, um, the those kind of capabilities. And I luckily worked for a company that was able to be able to define those dynamically, um, and be able to build a lot of really interesting use cases outside of the phishing use case or. I have an IP, I'm going to enrich it, I'm going to block it, which you should never do. And I've had organizations I walked into to say, hey, can you just go ahead and block the domains that have a score over five? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> we will not do that, right? <laughs> so, um, you have automation. I think it's, it's important to understand the automation internally, IT, screen engineering. Is it is it at a different maturity level than I think it is at the security operation perspective? Because it's easier to find the things that we can actually codify. We can say, this machine has this amount of RAM, CPU, hard drive space connected to this IP and this domain and this network. I can define that in a file, spin it up, spin it down, and automate that. But if you talk about security where you say, okay, I care about this TTP and this behavior against this actor, but I need to respond if it's this host or this host and not this host. And then I need to maybe block or remove from the network if it's these sets of things, but I can't do it if it's this person. Like it gets really hard to define logically and build those workflows across cybersecurity and those response, the detect side, um, uh, you know, in every step in between. So yeah, it's, 
it's definitely a it's a it's a uphill battle. I think there's there's companies doing it right, um, but so, you have to be. I, I hate it when somebody says just automate it because they don't understand the amount of time and effort it takes to build the logic and the exceptions and all that into a flow. Sorry. So yeah, PTSD, I, get, I, need a break. <laughs> I know I can, I can tell we can lose your counselor after this. Um, the, uh, I just want to make a couple quick remarks because I want to make sure we get to our last uh, topic we want to touch on. Um, but basically, with my experience with automation, I've always kind of hated the automated response. And it's not that I don't think there's things we can't automatically respond to, but I've just seen more value with how you can enrich things so people can make better decisions. And that's where I feel like most of the mundane tasks are for at least security professionals are like, okay, I've got this little bit of information. How do I get more information about that thing to make that decision easier, right? And what's worse is when you don't have all the information, I've, I've been an analyst myself where like, okay, I can say with some confidence, this is okay, right? Which I always felt bad doing, but I had no information to help me make a better decision. So as you find ways to pull information in and like collect it and automate it, so it's not like a taxing like I, I can spend an hour and a half on this and give you a, a solid answer. That's something you shouldn't you know be doing. Um, so that I lean towards how can you use automation to enrich and contextualize and add value. An example, so it's a little bit of story time. I remember we were doing kind of a data study on web traffic. And I had uh, one of my analysts working on it and I was working closely with him. And we found out that, you know, on a daily basis per day, we had 8 million proxy logs, right? And we were like, okay. And we really liked the enrichment of Alexa, right? If you're familiar with Alexa, they rate basically how popular a site is. And usually if something's really popular, it's less likely malicious. And that's why they have like the one million, top 1 million or whatever it is. Yeah easy to grab that list, but there is an API you can pay for and get so many enrichments based on cost. By going through the exercise on how much would it cost for us to enrich the domains people are going to, we found out a couple things. One, out of that 8 million logs a day, there are only about 20,000 a day unique domains, which is significant data reduction when you want to then enrich wow. and contextualize something, right? And then not only on that, we also found out that users kind of fall within an Alexa ranking themselves. So like someone might be using the web and depending on how savvy they are with the internet, they might fall in like the 20,000 range because they're using popular sites. So then you can almost baseline and say, gosh, this person usually has a threshold of 20,000 in their Alexa ranking, and now they flew way out of it. Or if there's some site that has no Alexa ranking, we give it some absurd score. So, you know, that was another thing we had to deal with. But that's where it was really cool with automation to figure out the enrichment of that. And then because, you know, if people are curious about the cost, we're figuring out how much it would cost for us to enrich 8 million logs a day. We came with a process where it cost us about, I think, uh, $7 a day to enrich all of our data at most um, with Alexa rankings and be able to use that contextual information to make threat-based decisions and find net new things that we haven't seen before. Uh, we didn't put it into production um, at the time, but a really cool study, right? Um, you guys denied $7 a day to put it into production. Budget, uh, budgetary issues, right? <laughs> politics, but the other yeah. thing I want to mention 
um, <laughs> is if anyone's not used to doing any automation, one tools, one of the tools we use for some threat intel based things, and it's kind of a cool tool. It's called Node Red. Um, oh. I'll, I'll try to throw that in the chat here so people can get to it. Um, but basically, it it, it's kind of graphical, but it lets you, and it runs on a Raspberry Pi for things you want to do for like basic jobs. But you can transform, interact with the APIs. It can create a whole graphical workflow, connect things. Um, and it's kind of easy to build with for the most part. But if there's some really interesting things you want to do with automating, contextualizing data and doing things, you can plug stuff like this. And this is one of those things where we did this project outside of our, our corporate tooling to be able to pull some... Um, things off because security professionals just get things done that's why i'm that's how i differentiate between it professionals no, um, no dig on it professionals but yeah there's another yeah. one infrastructure wise called Stackstorm. that's really cool as well is it yeah yeah Very it's cool. um they actually have integrations <clears throat> across a bunch of different tool sets that you can kind of plug in i, I know node red is a little bit more of a it's the infrastructure to be able to automate so you're still gonna have to write the inputs outputs and in, in the yeah uh, the ability to like pass data. This one is a little bit more baked in, um, but there's really cool opportunities. And I think from an organization, if you can automate the, the, the less complex things in a process, do that, right? That's only gonna make your life better. And there's a really cool study or a story, uh, I think I read, and I'll try to pull up the Reddit article, but somebody had automated- just putting it out there if you want to go to the next topic. Minute, sorry. Somebody automated his whole morning. So if he didn't get out of bed and turn off his alarm in time, it would email the boss immediately and say he's running late. He'd walk <laughs> in, like the coffee maker would turn on uh, when he got in and signed on his desk for the four minute walk to the coffee maker. And like he had automated his whole workflow. So Ooh, there are some cool things time back. Anyway, <laughs> all right, next topic. Boom. All right, so we're going to jump on and we're going to cover this down, the Vegas attack. So I'll kind of introduce this. The biggest thing here is, you know, I really want to talk about what made this such a big headline, what makes it different from everything else, and what are some of the takeaways and things we should be thinking about. And, you know, I've been thinking about this, and it's funny because people get hit with ransomware, unless it's like something that's critical infrastructure, it doesn't really get much traction. And we hear like, oh, big business hit here, and everyone kind of bats their eye like, oh, it sucks. They must have not done something right, and ransomware got them, you know. And we kind of move on. This is interesting to me because, man, did it blow up everywhere. And I think the reason why is it actually, in fact, it impacted people, right? Mm -hmm. People going to Vegas and they want to have a good time. And they're like, what the hell? I, this is ruining my day kind of scenario. And so it has so much more visibility than anything that we would think would be nation driven or government driven or whatever. Because it's like in people's face and people can like witness it, post things about it. You know, it's all over the place. Um, so MGM owns most of Vegas now. They've been buying up like yeah, they have yeah. So I mean, it impacted a lot of Vegas, right? Yeah. Um, so there is that piece that I thought was very interesting, and I'm trying to be brief so we can be you know cognizant of time here. Um, but then the other thing was you know obviously how this all got kicked off, right? They're basically saying they were seeing a lot of social engineering. We talked about this earlier, and even someone I think made a comment in the Discord about like, yeah, kind of like the Vegas thing when it came to social engineering from LinkedIn. Um, and that was a guy was just trying to reset, or a guy called in the help desk to say I need things reset and provided enough information to basically say, hey, yeah. Um, I need this reset and they did it and through Okta, which is kind of like your, 
identity access management tool, which sounds like a great tool. It's not like necessarily Okta's fault. So I hate that, you know, a brand gets thrown out there and then people start, you know, questioning things. Um, but one thing I want to point out is if you look at Okta's um, posting about the social engineering stuff they were seeing, they brought up some really good like stage of the attack um, queries. Uh, and what was great was, you know, basically when they have access to the admin console from weird locations or they talk about resetting some two-factor uh, resets and things like that um, for detections and things that I think people should be thinking about in their other tools. So obviously if you use Okta, it'd be great to be doing some of these things as well. But that was something else I wanted to call out as far as the attack goes is uh, there are things in data and for these types of solutions that people should be looking for or reporting on or hunting for uh, to help with these types of things um, that I thought was beneficial. And then the other thing I wanted to touch on was uh, one of the guys, it, it actually worked with him at a cyber shield. Um, but it's Aaron uh, Rosenman, and he's the senior director at uh, uh, Pluralsight. Uh, and he made some comments, which I thought were pretty pretty good. And he was basically saying, you know, this is a known ransomware group, but they're able to encrypt, encrypt over 100 uh, ESXi servers. Yes. And something up, yeah, I know. That's a lot. And you think about the infrastructure they back, and that's why so many things were going down, right? And the biggest thing he was calling out was they had to have access to a device and the credentials to basically query vCenter to determine what were the ESXi hosts in general, right? So that was the first step. And then they had to have a device, access to a device where they had separate SSH credentials to be able to connect to the ESXi management interfaces on port 22, which is SSH, right? Um, which isn't required, right? So you have to turn actually, that on. You, yeah, yeah have, that's an enabled feature that you have to turn on. Right, and you do that for troubleshooting, and you do that for other things, but you don't need to have that active. And this group uses this as a mechanism. So if you take that out of their playbook, they have to figure some other way to attack this or enable it, right? Um, so it's a great way to kind of stop this specific actor. Um, the other thing is, you know, they recompile the the same ransomware to be able to run on Linux, right? To create an ELF binary. Um, but one of their actions was they SCP'd it over first to a home directory, and then they had to SSH in to execute it. Um, and it hosts. What's that? They had to SCP it to every single one of those hosts. Right, right. So, like, you see a yeah. lot of those activities. Like, there's things you could look for, but also there's things that even if you had SSH enabled, it shouldn't be accessible across the entire environment. We talked about zero trust a little bit earlier, and I talked about, like, I have, you know, good and bad and, uh, feelings about zero trust in general, but this is an example where this type of access, especially if it's a service that shouldn't be on only except for like troubleshooting type scenarios, you should definitely limit it down to how you get to it as well. I mean, and we can't, right. And we, yeah, right. And we, we could talk about the credential problem. That's something social engineered. There's not much you can do about it after they got to that point. Um, they, they, they did a good job social engineering. They got those credentials, but there's other ways for you to see this activity and potentially defend against it. So I'll pass so it on to time. They got access to Okta. Yeah. User account of a specific individual. I'm guessing he's an engineer at NGM. Who then well, they, they had to sit on an Okta sensor because they dumped the domain apparently and they couldn't crack all the passwords. And they had to sit there and sniff passwords for really high privilege accounts while they're on Okta sensor. So it sounds like they had some way to make that play, which was interesting. Because mm -hmm. that took some time, but mm -hmm. that access to the Octus stuff 
is where they're able to then leverage, leverage. everything else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they miss payroll, which is crazy. Like you're right, it affected a lot of people. High visibility. You're talking about the gambling industry, sports industry, betting industry. Most of these these hacks happen, and it's like Target got hacked, and their credit card system got hacked. But like, yeah. okay, uh, I'll cut off my credit card. Um, yeah, you, you can respond right? to that, yeah. yeah I, I went to Cosmo's website the other day, um, all the way down, right? I was, I was kind of pinging around, looking around, everything was down. This one's interesting. I think I just saw an article yesterday, they're going to lose $8.4 million a day. Yeah. Um, and that came out the day before today. I saw an article that said everything's back to normal. So I don't know what they did to remediate. Um, I'm guessing they did not have full backups of all of the VMs across all those hundred hosts that managed payroll and the systems. But holy well, see, crap. It's virtual, I feel like you should, but that's just my take. Well, no, so those vCenter hosts are probably in a data center somewhere. And the, yeah, there can absolutely be VMs, but you also have to reprovision all the hundred hosts. Oh, it's, yeah, it's time consuming, changes. yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, right? And, and yeah. typically, if you're going to use like Veeam, which is a backward backup solution for those hosts, you can do that. Um, but then you have the data. So if you're encrypting ESXi, you also have access to the the the, uh, the data stores as well, potentially. And if you encrypt those, that's a whole trickle down effect of suck. So I I, I, I want to <laughs> see how they uh, I want to see how they remediated this because that's going to be um, Probably a masterclass and uh, in, in getting back up um, and operational within you know five days, and that's that's amazing. So they got hacked, but kudos to them to be able to fix the problem as quickly as they did um, from an infrastructure IT perspective. Yeah, I think that probably should be discussed a little bit more. And I feel bad for the guy who got popped because holy crap, right. <laughs> it cost them a lot of money. <laughs> I, I like the poll how like one of the equal uh scores is what happens in vegas is an answer because <laughs> yep. you know anything can happen hey <laughs> 30 we did it another one <laughs> all right yeah let me uh let me close this out then so uh i just want to thank everyone for joining i know we always come up against the minute right um but i think we have some interesting conversations and i, I appreciate people's comments uh, sorry if we missed someone's comments and didn't cater to them. We're trying to get better at that. Uh, that's just kind of part of the process. And yeah, if anyone knows when you're dived into a topic, it's really hard to break character to try to to read things and do other things. So um, if you like what you hear, you know, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere else that uh, you you listen to podcasts. If you leave a good review, it really helps us kind of get discovered. So I just appreciate any kind of review. Um, that's always a good thing uh, because the more people that actually join, the more conversation we can have even internally on the Discord. So that'd be great. And and for those that don't know, we do a weekly, uh, we call it brief, but sometimes it goes a little long, but 30 to 45 minute episode. And we typically pull five breaking news topics um, and we try to put our spin on you know, what we care about from a threat hunting technical perspective or from a security perspective in general. Um, and that that hits on Wednesdays uh, when that occurs. So it's just a good like, hey, here's some quick highlights, some things to think about from a technical perspective from um, to some aptitude. So uh, appreciate everyone for joining. Um, just had a good time. Yeah, Alex, thanks for jumping on. This is the first time on. We'll have you back. Yeah, yeah it was fun. It was fun, guys. And then if you guys tried the drink, I think there'll be a poll thrown up. Let us know what you think. We're trying to come up with a way to maybe come up with like here are the top 
so many drinks that we've leveraged through AI to create um, and maybe come up with some sort of like drink cocktail recipe book for Cyborg and people can, can get that or we can distribute that however we want to do that. But uh, definitely weigh in if you did partake um, because, you know, we're forced to here at Cyborg. So either way. Um, <laughs> That's not that's not correct. You don't force <laughs> But yeah, I love I love the conversations. Love everyone joining. Um just happy hunting, everyone. Yep, happy hunting. Great talking with you all. Yes. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security. Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.